This is Dr. Canadiana, a podcast about Canadian theatre history. I'm your host, Ashley Williamson. And here we are, episode 12. Over the course of the last 12 weeks, I have talked to you about a variety of post-1967 Canadian theatre history topics, people, plays, events, movements, and it is time to review and reflect on our learning. What do we know about Canadian theatre? When I designed our course and this podcast to go along with it, I hadn't envisioned being able to see clearly identifiable and unifying themes like colored threads running through our work. That is why reflection is so important in learning, everyone's, including mine. Looking back helps you understand. I mean, isn't that the thesis of historical learning? Looking back to understand? We started the long-term project to define Canadian from an artistic standpoint. We read Robertson Davies' recommendations to Vincent Massey and his Royal Commission on National Development in the Arts and Letters and Sciences, published in 1950. Davies' recommendations to Massey echoed ones from other experts calling for a development of a distinct Canadian identity by supporting art made by Canadians. And the earlier definitions of this seem to be not American, not English. These documents also pointed to an inferiority complex, looking to external matrices for validation. These documents called for financial support for what they called Indigenous drama, by which they did not mean Indigenous as we use the word now, but rather drama made by people living in Canada, not Indigenous people. Yeah, it's confusing. Playwriting emerged as one solution, supporting their work financially in various ways, creating playwriting and residence opportunities. This emphasis on playwriting also comes 20 some years later after Massey with the Gaspé Manifesto in 1971 and its call for the 50% rule. We talked about the importance placed on Canada's centennial year, 1967, and the grants given out to support centennial projects buildings, events, nature trails, songs, and plays. We discussed the value of George Riga's centennial project, the ecstasy of Rita Joe, then and now. We landed in Toronto in the 1970s when the alternative theater scene was starting up and people like Paul Thompson of Theater Pass Marai was building plays with Collective Creation. We used Nightwood Theater's Anna Collective's 1985 show, This Is For You, Anna, to examine the collective experience. Ken Gass and Bill Glasgow in the 1970s were working closely with playwrights on new play development and dramaturgy at Factory Theatre and at Tarragon. We talked about Creeps and how David Freeman and Bill Glasgow shaped that play into an early Canadian classic. Along the way, we talked to experts like Lisa Aikman about dramaturgy and disability, Cameron Crookston about language and identity, and Nina Lee Aquino about mandate shifting in a new millennium. These are the threads I can see most clearly from our term of working on our Canadian theatre quilt. Pickers and choosers. The strong case for playwriting. Historical eyes or 2020 vision. I knew we would return to some of these ideas week after week, like pickers and choosers, playwriting and dramaturgy. I organized our readings and topics so we could. 
However, insights like 2020 vision, a term we got from Cameron Crookston, or Nina Lee Aquino's discussing a theater's mandate being affected by an artistic director's identity were unexpected. So, pickers and choosers, which I think became a shorthand for the Canadian canon and its development, and it permeated our every discussion. I did not choose to do this only to point out that for a very, very long time, the pickers and choosers were older white men, but to discuss what the historical circumstances were that made that so. It should not be a surprise that the people who were able to marshal the capital, financial, artistic, and social to open influential and revolutionary theater companies in Toronto in the 1970s were white dudes with beards. It should surprise you if that happens now. It is worth noting that all the Canadian theater and drama anthologies and their introductions until 2018 were compiled by white male university professors. Not to dismiss their work, Wasserman, Falwad, Plant, Benson, and Rubin are well-informed and knowledgeable contributors. But we notice this to better understand their choices and perspectives. This is something we learned from Nina Lee Aquino. She did not change the mandate of factory theater. It still produces new Canadian plays. It just looks that way because the picker is now a woman of color who is a different definition of a what a Canadian play is. This is why we should pay attention to the pickers and choosers of the canon. Not to dismiss their choices, necessarily, but to ask why these choices were made. Next, from Massey to Gaspé to collective creation to developmental dramaturgy, a bright, glittering thread emerged that spelled out playwrights and playwriting. The way plays were written or developed for the stage was a topic we returned to week over week. The preoccupation with playwriting in Canada is a thing. If I was to summarize what the central trend is, I would say this, community. Playwrights do not work in a vacuum in Canada. We have a long tra tradition of developmental dramaturgy, factory theater, tarragon theater, and theater passe Urjo Kareda putting his stamp on 20 years of Canadian plays. As Lisa Aikman pointed out, he created a tarragon and ultimately Canadian house style of poetic realism. Playwrights and residence programs, like the ones Marie Clemens did at UBC and Simon Fraser, and playwriting programs like the one at Banff Centre. Canadian drama and theatre early on, but especially leading up to Centennial and beyond, put a great deal of, it, of its eggs in the playwriting basket. Now, historical thinking is how we started in episode two. I talked about my reasons for choosing Unity 1918 as our first case study. I talked about being in that play in 2008 and how foreign the idea of a global event like a pandemic seemed and how quaint a mask as a medical necessity felt to the cast. I said that over the last few months, I'd been thinking a lot about that play and being able to relate to it and to understand the character I played so much better than I had 12 years ago. And then I said this, quote, this kind of historical thinking Empathy for those who lived before us and trying to understand their daily lives, thinking about the context for decisions they made, is so much more valuable than memorizing important dates, notable people, major events. Studying history should be looking at the past for everyday people and listening to their stories. 
This is the context that matters, end quote. And this context is what I think we started to call 2020 vision. It started with our discussion of language in Fortune in Men's Eyes with Cameron Crookston, who encouraged us to be careful not to project our understanding of gender and sexuality on characters from 1947 who were written into existence by someone in 1964. He talked to us about how hard this was to hear Mona be called she repeatedly and to understand that our 2020 urge was to make her a transgender character, but that that was not historically correct and it was a dangerous misinterpretation of what John Herbert was trying to do. And yet, he admitted it was difficult for him to do it too. Lisa Aikman brought this point up again when she and I were discussing creeps. It was difficult in 2020 to understand how a production of a play about disabled men would not be cast with disabled actors. It wouldn't until 2016. And that the language being used was a murky mix that Aikman admitted was difficult to discern if it was okay even then. The historical and social contexts of these plays, when and where and why they were produced, need to be taken into consideration. The value of studying the play in 2020 remains, even if the value of putting it on stage might not. Which brings me to an insight all my own. What I am calling the legacy of teaching the big three. As I read, wrote, and researched for these podcasts, I began really thinking about the ecstasy of Rita Joe, the fortune in men's eyes, and creeps, having all been produced in Canada's centennial year and what that can tell us about the development of Canadian theatre and drama. You can hear me talk about it with Lisa Aikman, who posits, rather thoughtfully I think, that it might have to do with Canadian Identity Project, the Canada has been in seemingly forever. If we can't decide what Canadian means, except not to be American or not to be English, and we are positioning ourselves, as Aikman says, scrappy little nobodies, then it stands to reason this aesthetic might be putting our most marginalized on stage. This idea has returned to me over and over. I think about Dr. Moira Day's reflection on what continuing to teach the ecstasy of Rita Joe year after year alongside other plays about Indigenous characters actually written by Indigenous playwrights offers her students. I think about Cameron Crookston, who teaches theatre, but also gender and sexuality studies, and what it means that when I asked him if he would be on my podcast about Fortune in Men's Eyes, he agreed because he loves the play and he loves talking about it while fully acknowledging it's hard to read with his 2020 vision. When I teach this course again, I will teach those three plays together as a statement about Canadian identity, to have a discussion about identity and language, to ask my students how they would stage them then and now, if at all, I came into this course with ideas about the canon and how it was formed, who was forming it and why it was important that I talk about it. I knew the play creations, whether it was collective creation or developmental dramaturgy or just straight up playwriting was gonna be a central theme. But what I didn't expect was to find a new way to talk about Canada's early problem plays, as it were, that I would lay in bed and think about ways to teach them questions I would ask or assignments I could design to help my students and myself better understand their function in the canon. And that, friends, is why reviewing and reflecting is the most critical step in the learning process. 
for everyone. This will be the last episode of Dr. Canadiana until the new year, 2021, whatever the heck that will bring. I have enjoyed thinking about, researching, writing, revising, and recording about my favorite topic, Canada and its art. And so I will continue to do so. Hopefully you will listen. Until next time, eh?